Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. I am Claire Campos O'Neill. And I am Nicole Abshire. And we are so thankful that you're here with us today, joining us for our conversation with our wonderful guest, Jamu Green. Jamu is fascinating. She has had quite a political background. She currently is the founder and CEO of We Defend Truth, which is an organization that fights online disinformation in a really creative, unique way that is super accessible to people. She's also worked with Rock the Vote, which is about helping register folks to vote. And she's also trained thousands of women to run for office through this organization called Vote Run Lead. So it was really great talking to Jamu about the different places she's worked in the political realm and about how to identify disinformation, how to be better media consumers, and just learn from her because she's so like well-versed in the political sphere. I really enjoyed a lot of what she shared and some like tools she gave us on how to be better, better truth discerners. What did you think, Nicole, of our conversation? What I love about Jamu is that she is clearly incredibly well-versed and knowledgeable about all the things that she talks about. And yet there is absolutely no, she doesn't hold anything sort of to I don't want to say high standards. That is not what I mean at all. But what I just mean is that she is willing to engage with people exactly where they are. She doesn't have any kind of highfalutin ideals about the ways that we should communicate with each other. She very much is based in practicality. She is based in wanting to see disinformation disappear. And so whatever that takes is what she's willing to do. And I, so I just really appreciate the level of of pragmatism that she demonstrates. And then obviously, I think that the fight against disinformation couldn't be more important, especially in this day and time. And I just really appreciate the work that she does. Yes, me too. Yeah, she's just feels very holistic about it. Like, yes, there's a goal in mind, but we have to have like good humor and patience and meet people where they are and find a way to communicate with them in a language that they will understand And that was a really nice message to hear and a reminder to just keep trying. Yeah. I think that I was looking for earlier and never in a condescending way. Yeah. She never talks about that in any sort of a way of like, well, this is how you have to bring people along in any, with, there is no condescension in what she says. And I think that that is refreshing. Something I really appreciate. It's refreshing. And I also think that it's actually not that common. And so I, I really, really appreciated that. Yes. So listen to the show. Let us know what you think. And we hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. We're really excited to speak with Jamu Green this afternoon and talk about her, her involvement in Texas politics, just her involvement in politics and her current organization called We Defend Truth and learn more about disinformation and how to identify it, which we're learning more and more is such a necessary skill in this day and age. So thanks, Jamu, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to be in conversation. Yeah, you have quite the biography, the experience level. So 
it's going to be exciting to talk about some of the different places that you've worked in the past. But to start with, we always like to go back to the beginning with our guests and hear a little bit about their origin story. So can you tell us where did you grow up? Are you from Texas? As they say, I wasn't born here, but I got here as fast as I could. I moved to Austin when I was five years old and did all of my public schooling here in Austin and then left for 23 years where Austin was always on my mind. Texas was always top of mind. I've kind of always walked outside of Texas as a very proud Texan, but really thrilled to be back home since 2018. Yes. Well, we're glad that you're here. And so all of your Texas living has been in Austin. Yeah. And as it should be. (laughs) Agree. (laughs) You will get no arguments. Yes. From either of us. I certainly like Austin as just a, an activist, an organizer growing up in Austin specifically is such a core part of who I am and why I'm progressive. And so, yes, Texas proud, but I mean, Austin only. (laughs) Yeah, well, we love it here, too. Speaking of growing up and politics, when you were younger, was this something that your family discussed around the dinner table? Did y'all, was this something that you remember hearing from your family and your parents? So my parents immigrated from Liberia. They actually came to the U.S. to go to grad school. And both of my parents wanted to go back to Liberia and run for office. So their vision for their future was always political involvement, running for office. And when the coup happened in Liberia and they could not go back and then had their children here in the U.S., it was always certainly politics was always discussed. When you get a large group of Liberians in a room at a dinner table, there's always a very loud conversation about whatever is going on in politics, not just in Liberia, of course, but certainly everything in the U.S. (laughs) was yelled about at our dinner table. And there was also this kind of feeling and spirit around that my parents were not citizens. At one point, they were undocumented. When their student visas ran out, like the cases for millions of undocumented Americans right now, kind of there was this energy that we were citizens. I was born in Washington, D.C., that I was very much had a responsibility to participate in the politics of the country that I was a citizen of. Was there like a particular thing that really animated them and their political conversation? Certainly they were Democrat. And I remember when... Reagan was elected. That was not a good thing. (laughs) There was a lot of yelling. And I can't remember any one kind of specific issue. There was always a lot of debate around like the individual candidates running for office. And I think that's right. The nature of the world, like people, ideally people would be voting for candidates and not parties, but we're not there yet. Yes. That's what I was thinking. Like, here we are. Right. Well, and I don't know if I am adding on my own thoughts with the things that you're saying, Jimmy, but I'm getting this sense that sort of political activation and discussion feels maybe slightly culturally based. It just sounds like it was just such a part of the way that your parents 
experienced the world. And I'm just curious if that rings true to you at all, or does it feel just more individualistic to who your parents were? Just wondering if there's a cultural aspect to any of that discussion. Well, I've got three siblings and none of them are in politics. (laughs) I'm the only one. So as much as kind of it was the path that my parents had wanted to take that was denied to them, and as much as it was debated around the dinner table, I'm the only one that absorbed all of it. And I was always, from a very young age, very passionate about my opinion and making sure that whether it was a teacher in kindergarten or stranger, that my voice was going to be heard. So I also think that this has been a part of just my personal drive as long as I can remember. I love that. That's great. (laughs) So how did you first get involved in politics? From a like professionally, or I guess what was your first job in politics? It sounds like you were always interested in it. I was doing something like certainly running for class officer or student council positions. But my first job professionally was Jim Maddox's campaign in 1994. He was running in the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate against Richard Fisher. And I think I was 18, 19, 18 at the time. And no, I was not 18. (laughs) It doesn't matter what age I was, but I think I was a couple of years off there. But it was my first campaign. I was in charge of volunteers. Interestingly, the campaign manager who hired me, he had done his Peace Corps work in Liberia. And when I went to volunteer for the campaign, we had a conversation at the end of the night. And I shared that my parents were from Liberia and he shared his very passionate memories of his Peace Corps work. They hired me on the spot. So yeah, thanks to my parents, I got that first job. I was going to say, I bet they loved that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I took every advantage of it as volunteer coordinator and even got on the news at one point, very quickly started doing Young Democrats and kind of that whole process a lot of young folks go through within the party. But I think I also very quickly got disillusioned with the Democratic Party back in 94. There were some issues. <laughs> and so I had to bounce. And I left Texas, came back 20 something years later. Yeah. So you've worked in, well, can you tell us some of the different areas you've worked in in politics? Like reading your biography, I know that you helped, and I'm so sorry, I can't remember the name of the organization, but an organization that helped train women to run for office. And I believe also rock the vote. So like with mobilization and training, can you tell us some of those different areas that you've touched on throughout your life? Yeah, actually, when I went to vote for the first time for Ann Richards, when I was 18, (laughs) And that was 1990. When I went to vote for Ann Richards, I had registered to vote. I, as I've said, a very political person as a young person, I wasn't someone that needed to be convinced to vote. It was something I was running towards. I was very excited about that first vote. They told me that I wasn't on the list and that I couldn't vote. And my heart was broken. I cried. That moment, I was or very close to that moment. I was very clear that, like, I was going to make sure no other young person had that same experience. And so then got to within a few years volunteer for Rock the Vote and then 
several years later, became president of Rock the Vote, where we registered over 2 million young people to vote. I think looking back at that time at Rock the Vote, what I'm probably most proud of is the work we did to pioneer online voter registration, which is now everywhere. You can go to many, every website and click on a link. But that was something that we launched for the first time. Been honored to train through Vote Run Lead thousands of women across the country to run for office. Vote Run Lead as a whole has trained over 35,000 women to run for office and is now really hyper-focused on looking at state legislatures and being very targeted in how we get to 51% women in state legislatures across the country, starting with New York, Minnesota, and Georgia. And we'll be adding more states to that very quickly. And our vision is a future where state legislatures are 51% women. So can you tell us now nationally, what is the average? Is it like 25%, 30%? We have not cracked 30%. It's different if you're looking at Congress or governor mansions or state houses. But in general, we hover around 20% across the board. But there are places that have never had a woman as governor. There are places that have never had a woman as a congressperson. And we have a lot of work to do to increase those numbers because we've kind of plateaued since 1992 when there was the big pink wave. Have you studied what that plateau is about? Or is that known? Is it possible to know? Why there are more men in elected office than women? The patriarchy, right there, sexism, sexism in the media. The list is very long. When you look at kind of online harassment and just harassment of candidates in general, the overwhelming target of that is going to be women who are running for office, women who are elected to office. Mostly, those are going to be women of color. And that is, I feel, a very clear intended purpose, which is to keep women from political leadership. So when it comes to how you get past some of these barriers, I think there's some really great work that's being done out there, certainly with Vote Run Lead on the training forefront and with kind of making sure that women understand how to put together a campaign, but also how to like design their life to fit a campaign, to allow for a campaign, to tap into their life for how to get those resources that every campaign is going to need. There are a lot of those resources out there, but I think one of the things we need to see a little bit more work on is the pushback against the harassment and also disinformation, which is something I know we're going to talk about soon. A lot of targeted disinformation is going towards women candidates. And I think we have a natural tendency to not want to be confrontational sometimes. And so we see a lot of women who are running for office don't respond to disinformation, don't respond to the attacks, don't respond to the harassment. Because I mean, clearly you want it to go away. It's not going to go away. But it's also very important to voters and to the community that we start really pushing back, clapping back as some folks say, and really holding folks accountable for disinformation, harassment, and all of the ways they're trying to stop us from political leadership. Yeah. 
This is a question that I'm thinking about, especially with what Nicole just asked. But Nicole and I offline think a lot about like, what's the most pressing issue that keeps us from having better, more fulfilling lives like us, our community, the nation. If you could like wave your magic wand, like what one thing would you solve first? Would it be having more women in office or making it easier to vote? Like, what do you think is that thing? Like if we could get a a grip on this, then like the other things can maybe fall into place better. That is a really great question. Every part of me wants to stay only one thing. And then I think it's impossible. I mean, do I believe that if we snapped our fingers and women were 51% of every political body in this country, that like there would be an immediate change in our politics? Yes, absolutely. That would be amazing. There would be more listening. There would be more compromises. There would be more bills that actually were directly impacting the communities that are most vulnerable. All of those things would happen in a tsunami. And at the same time, we are unfortunately dealing with media ecosystem gotten our democracy to a place I know and I imagine for y'all too. We never would have imagined we'd be here (laughs) where civil war is like actively being discussed on local news where just democratic norms that we all thought were a part of how we were going to move closer and closer to the promise of America have all like kind of been stripped away. And a lot of that is because of, yeah, the media ecosystem, how ripe it is for disinformation. And so if there was something I could snap my fingers and do to get rid of all of it. (laughs) I feel like that too would have such an immediate impact, but I feel it's also kind of naive to say get rid of social media. But when you look at the common thread of the disinformation that's destroying our democracy, whatever the disinformation is, whether it's on COVID or QAnon or climate denial, all of it, like the, (laughs) that common thread is social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like in our conversations, Nicole, with our guests, we are we're learning along with our listeners about all these different aspects that go into our government system. And it's like, that's a mess. That's a mess. That's a mess. That's a mess. <laughs> it's like, oh, I've used this analogy of opening up a door and the house is a disaster. And it's like, where do you start? So that's why I'm curious. I'm like, if we could just start here, <laughs> maybe the rest would fall into place. It is a beautiful mess. <laughs> I just love this I really do. I love this country. I love our democracy. I love the fact that we can move closer and closer to the promise of America and that we've seen that done very effectively. Certainly, there's a lot to be done, but it is a beautiful mess. And I also think voter registration might be the one thing that could do it. As we were talking just then, I was like, well, I mean, voter registration in and of itself is a obstacle to voting and was originally intended to be an obstacle to voting for people they didn't want voting. So get rid of voter registration. And I'm like, clearly we need to protect our electoral system. But like, I'm okay with having some kind of national ID card that means that you don't have to register to vote. Like the very limited number of people who participate in local politics, percentages of voter turnout in local elections, really scary. So anything we could do to get more people participating, that might be that the moonshot or the hero. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, we appreciate we your take on that. We will you to it. We'll yeah. allow you to have. <laughs> I'm going to come back with a list of 10. <laughs> a mix of them sounds okay. And then we'll have a plan of attack. Okay, so we'd love for you to tell us about your organization, We Defend Truth, and why it was created, why it felt like now was the time to make this organization happen. Right. Yeah. So I, for the last 12 years, have been Fox News local analyst, and which also reminds me of another cure-all, which is like, if we would just actually listen to the other side, <laughs> everyone on all sides. <laughs> that we're way too much in our silos. That could fix everything. Yeah. Well, can I ask you really quick, what does it mean like specifically to be a political analyst? So I go on air and talk about politics, all of the horse race issues to the news of the day to disinformation and conspiracy theories that have taken over <laughs> our conversations. And I provide my opinion, commentary, analysis of it using the experience I have built up over the last few decades. I've done that exclusively with Fox News for the last 12 years and certainly have, like I said, real appreciation for <laughs> communicating to people who don't agree with you, <laughs> don't look like you, <laughs> don't live where you live. I think there's just so much growth that comes from that. In that role, I also had a very up close and personal perspective of how disinformation and kind of these bubbles were impacting viewers. And after 12 years, I realized that I wanted to really do more to address that disinformation bubble that I'd seen up close and personal. And so partnering with David Goldstein, who had just done some incredible work in Alabama in 2017, where he was able to talk to very strong conservative voters who were supporting Roy Moore, type of people that people on the left never talked to. And he put together a digital campaign and was able to move 4% of them away from Roy Moore. And then I connected with David in 2020. We put together a campaign in Pennsylvania where we connected with Trump voters from 2016, and we were able to move 9% of them away from Trump. 5% went to Biden, 4% just didn't vote for Trump. And ultimately, this is what folks on the right are doing. This is what the peddlers of disinformation are doing. They are operating in the margins, and it's a real important conversation that needs to happen. Like, we have to find ways to have conversations with people who are being fed lies on a daily basis, like just funneled into their brains. We can't just see that territory, not to call people territory, but. <laughs> so like, what have y'all found that's been effective to help expose those lies and for people to come around and be like, oh yeah, you're right. Well, absolutely. Engagement is the most important thing. We feel like you have to lead with compassion and you have to validate identity, certainly using culturally compelling content is important. And it's an easy way to validate identity and to prioritize engagement over persuasion. And what do I mean by that? Like we defend truth. We believe that like we're competing with cat videos on the internet. <laughs> like we're not competing with videos from political consultants. Like we're trying to, in the most 
funny way. We use humor a lot. And again, the most like way that we can pull from culture, pull from iconic scenes, images, characters that they feel very familiar with and get them to engage with our content. We prioritize that first engagement. And as soon as they engage with our content, then we move them to spaces on the internet websites that have truthful information, messengers that they trust, conservative voices that they trust. And I'm not as someone who has been a proud Democrat my entire life, even with the good (laughs) and the bad. I'm not saying to a very hardcore conservative person like, oh, let me change your mind on this. We are using the images and the language and the humor and the messengers that can convince that person. And we're presenting it to them in a way that is not political speak. One of our best partners is the number one GIF creator in Reddit history, or his GIFs have been viewed more times than any other creator in Reddit history. And he helps create our content. Run a lot of political organizations that are working with creatives like that. Most folks stick with the traditional approach and we're never going to win that. Yeah. I love a good GIF. So videos, memes, but it's all to get them the click. So then we can get them the correct information they haven't been. We're excited to have now moved from a PAC, a political action committee, to a 501c3. We did a vaccine campaign where in the spring of 2022, we connected with people who were very much likely not going to get be vaccinated. This was 2022. They had waited this whole time. We talked to folks in rural areas. We talked to African-American communities who were vaccine hesitant. and our campaign outperformed Stanford University's campaign by something like 31%. But ultimately, through that model, we were able to produce 100,000 or modeled to have produced 100,000 new vaccinations. So this is not just about like who's on the ballot. This is about how disinformation has been <laughs> our healthcare and now all of the issues that we care about. There is work to be done <laughs> to burst those bubbles. There's something in your approach that feels really atypical. And I don't know, there's something really humble about it that I feel like it makes it unique. This is my completely non-analyst, Nicole, who just is a consumer of many things and has impressions about things. So I'm curious to check in with you after I finally get these words out. But there's something that feels very humble about this. Like You're meeting people where they are. Your organization doesn't have sort of airs about what is... I don't know. Relevant isn't the right word. There's something like sort of like I'm looking for that has to do with almost like snobbery in here. Like I feel like some people have this sort of a highbrow look at these types of issues. And it's like, well, if you're not going to consume it the way I want to share it with you, then you are beneath me. And I feel like there's something really humble about what you're talking about, which feels very unique and novel and something that I have not really heard articulated before. So I'm wondering if I am hearing you right. I think so. I do think there has been some conversation around this recently, even in what President Obama had commented on as he was critiquing the left, critiquing the Democratic Party. I can't remember if he used the word woke, but basically to paraphrase, it was like saying like we might be too woke. But I think it was more kind of around just 
there is, we've gotten away from being able to just keep things simple. <laughs> like the way human beings connect, like when political consultants like put their ads together, think through like what they're going to put on television and in the radio ads they're doing. It's, they're not like talking how normal human beings talk. There's political speak and then there's like how normal people speak. <laughs> and there is kind of this disconnect around just keeping it simple, connecting with people, building trust first before you try to give them a list of 10 facts and figures and percentages and data to convince them. When we were living in caves, y'all, what would y'all have done if someone came into your cave that you didn't know and they started <laughs> just talking to you? Like, what I'm trying to get at is that we have it built in that like the first thing you have to do is build trust. And then <laughs> you can like do other things because back in the cave, if you didn't have that trust, like it was fight or flight. Like <laughs> I think folks on the left where I'm from have either forgotten or decided that building trust is not as important. That being right is more important than all of that information. I think that like Nicole was saying. And to me, that almost kind of feeds back into like the patriarchy, like we know what's best here, folks, listen to us. And if you don't, there's a dismissiveness that people feel and it turns them off. And then why would they want to come around to you down the road if they've already decided you're not their kind of person? So, yeah, I really appreciate the approach you guys are taking to sharing information. And it sounds like it's not about the ends. It's about the journey. Like this is going to be a journey and it's going to be a process. And hopefully we get where we want to get. But in the meantime, whatever, like we're all people, right? <laughs> we certainly are. I will definitely say, though, that the end is important. Like it is about moving people out of their disinformation bubbles and getting to a place of where climate denial is not going to destroy our planet and getting to a place where we can all like have some appreciation agreement on like basic facts and science. When it comes to our health <laughs> and pandemics that may pop up, like that we do have a real need to use the journey to get to a better place than where we are right now. Yeah. No, yeah. Thank you for <laughs> yeah, correcting me on that. Yeah. When I was putting these questions together, a lot of what I was thinking about was COVID-19 and how that was a big surprise to me because all of a sudden it felt like we weren't collectively agreeing with the medical community was saying. And there was these fractions of like, I don't believe that the vaccines are, I don't believe COVID's real. I don't believe the vaccines are effective. And this was coming from people I had never, ever thought would be saying these things. I mean, what do we do when we have these big crises where we can't even agree on who's the authority and which facts are real facts. I guess that goes back to that cure-all question. <laughs> what did I say? Get rid of social media, the common thread. So what happened through the democratization of media, which was heralded as a great thing, and I do think it, it's a good thing. But when we lost the editors and yeah, media was democratized and it was all about the media. That is became like these platforms became just the ripest places for disinformation and conspiracy theories that feel real that and now with 
when you think of like what AI brings to the disinformation possibilities and deep fakes and all of those, it is really scary. So what can we do? I think that like individually, people need to really be intentional in getting their information from sources that disagree with them just to like make sure that like you have the full picture. (laughs) I have very close friends who don't do that. I have people I love dearly and we agree with on every issue and they don't do that. So this is not just the other side needs to do that. I think that we could get a lot of good done if we all actually consumed information that was outside of what we agree with, (laughs) different than our opinion. And that would open up a lot of possibilities for countering disinformation, false narratives as one step. Yeah. I'm thinking about too, like, I do try to make it a point to peak, I guess. It's almost like I peak at- More than peak. (laughs) Right. But I will say, I like what's going through my mind is like this, like the both sidesism kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think maybe what I'm really thinking about is backing up a couple of steps to be a thoughtful consumer so that when I am consuming multiple sources, I'm able to ask some good critical thinking questions so that I'm not just a passive consumer. So I think I'm sort of wondering, like, what do you recommend in terms of that, right? Because not all news and information is the same, right? Some of it is better researched and more vetted. And so I guess I'm thinking about like, what are the steps maybe before sort of consuming multiple sources to make sure that you as a consumer are asking the right questions of what you're hearing so that you're not just sort of absorbing? Certainly, like, I don't think that you would go to any platform that was ripe with disinformation and that it would win you over. We don't know each other that well, but I think you would be okay. However, I do know that maybe not all are like you, Nicole. And so there are two different paths. I would say for you, like your goal of consuming is to like strategically understand what people who disagree with you, like what they are absorbing and what is being fed to them so that when you engage in the conversation with them, you have a better perspective. I think one of the things always comes up around the holidays, Thanksgiving dinner, talking politics, (laughs) like totally speaking a different language. And it's literally because we're consuming (laughs) completely a different set of facts. (laughs) And there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of emotion that comes with like when you're having that conversation and like, how can we not even just agree on the basic set of facts around this? Well, it makes sense if you have some experience with what the other side has been consuming, whatever the other side is, what, whatever that means for you, whatever side from. And I think strategically, that's really important. Now, for folks who might like get drawn into the conspiracy theories, if they start to really consume that type of information, I mean, I do think there are some good resources out there. And I Oh gosh, I might not be able to remember the exact name, but they did just partner with the American Federation of Teachers. I can kind of look it up as you're describing. Back to y'all with it, but it is literally a site that like ranks media outlets. It's a nonpartisan site there in schools around the country, and they help just 
normal folks like figure out what the media landscape is, what is trustworthy, and they have a, while we're talking, I'm going to find it because I think maybe I found it. There's this press release that says AFT, American Federation of Teachers, partners with NewsGuard to combat misinformation online. Yes, NewsGuard. We can make sure we put a link in the episode description. Okay, that makes me think of two things I'm going to try to tie together. And the more we talk about this, the more I just feel like as I'm having conversations with people who have a kind of different belief system than I do, the more I have to back up and try to find that place of commonality. But what I've noticed, and I mentioned this in the notes I submitted as I was preparing for this interview, was I heard this podcast recently called The Run Up, and the guest and the host were talking about Christian nationalism. And it sounds like they couldn't have a really good conversation about that specific topic because they couldn't even agree on the definition of it. So what do we do when we can't even get on the same, have the same link, like the same definition for what something is and isn't? Like, how do we even start talking? Like, how far do we have to go back before we can start talking and really having a meaningful conversation? My friend Jose Vargas, who founded Define American, and that might be actually what I'm most proud of professionally is the work that we did to change the conversation around immigration. Jose has been known as the most famous undocumented American at one point. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who wrote a piece coming out as undocumented and traveled the country talking to, in the most conservative spaces, talking to people who literally thought that like he should be arrested and shipped out of the country and was very intentional in these conversations. And Jose came out with a formula. So I tried to share this as much as possible that it takes 13 interactions before the conversation can actually even begin. So to your question, I'd say, one, we have to be patient, like, because we do kind of get into these conversations with folks who think differently, disagree with us, have a different set of facts. And it's like, one, two, three, and done. (laughs) We're out, like, can't go any further. But yes, Jose, after all of his travels, talking to people who do not like undocumented Americans. He said the conversation starts after those 13 interactions. (laughs) Now, I've tried to put the formula to test and whether it's 13 or 15 or 10 really is like that it actually is going, it's not going to be immediate. And you do have to start from a place like I'm invested in this human being. I'm invested in the outcome of (laughs) the knowledge that they have in their head and what they might do with it. And the first thing, I guess, is also just be willing to have the conversation. Where we are right now, like just most people are just not even willing. Like we are living separate lives and that's scary. How do you recommend we do that? Do we just say to someone, like, what do you think about immigration? <laughs> like, How do you open up the opportunity for those kind of conversations? Well, I mean, I imagine like there are people in like our immediate circles, communities who we know think differently. And I think just in your normal interactions to uh, try to have those conversations, but to maybe expand (laughs) that process, I would not just consume media that is different. I'd go to spaces that maybe feel a little bit uncomfortable or that you don't look, sound, and think like everyone in the room or Start with an like, assessment of your life. <laughs> and if every space you're in, everyone is in agreement with you. And most likely everyone looks like comfort is important. I get it. We all came through a pandemic. I'm big on comfort, y'all. Really big. 
carving out a little bit of space to be uncomfortable in conversation, in our time, in the spaces we spend. Those are some really actually big steps. Yes. I love that. Well, Nicole and I, speaking of discomfort, got to know each other through an acting class, which was always uncomfortable every week, but it was good for us. We grew. (laughs) Love it. it. So, okay. Something I want to circle back to because we were talking about NewsGuard and how this is a great site to go to because it ranks news sources. But the thing I was thinking was, I'm sure there's folks who will see certain sources as more trustworthy, but they'll still question that. And it almost feels like, like some folks don't even put much stock in the word like bipartisan anymore. Like, well, there always has to be some sort of slant one way or another. Do you agree with this? Like, do you think this is the case? Or do you think there are still places where people will mutually agree? Yeah, that's trustworthy or they're really in the pursuit of truth. I think there's certainly there are places that will always be more credible, most credible. The New York Times, for example, I don't think they're standing going anywhere. But to the like just questioning of media, I think that's a great thing. I encourage it. I mean, because even the most credible of places, they do get things wrong. And so I think if you have like kind of a just general position of that, I'm going to question (laughs) this information that is coming in front of me, whether it's from media outlet that I totally agree with all of the time, or it's an outlet that I disagree with, I think is a healthy practice. I sometimes get a little bit frustrated as I'm reading an article or on different online sites, because now I'm to the point where I'm like, okay, I know who placed this. I know what the pitch was that got this article written and I'm constantly like dissecting it. And sometimes I want to turn that noise off. But I I do think that folks who are not as entrenched as I am should turn up the process, especially for outlets that you agree with, because media is a business. We can't forget that. And there are lots of forces at play. There are the, whether it's candidates or organizations or corporations They have messages. They want to get those messages in the media and they're going to like craft them to like get their messages in. And the journalists, they have a goal. And the producers, they have another goal. And the people running the media business, they have a bottom line profit goal. And so there are all of these forces at play. And that means there are going to be shenanigans. So I don't necessarily want to say question everything, but (laughs) yes, I'm going to say question everything. It's a healthy skepticism is what you're describing, right? Which is also a theme of our other conversations, which is questioning leadership in general, and believing that we have a right to question it, right? The things that we participate in, I believe should be accountable to us in some form or another, and should be comfortable with questions. To critique so that we can learn, so that we can grow. One of the things, it's been hard, people are Folks have not been as welcoming of this, but I've been having a very frank conversation about the lesson that we learned from the decision that she waited to retire because she was confident that Hillary Clinton was going to become president and she wanted Hillary to replace her. And that was a decision that was made because of ego. It was not a decision that was made because of impact. I think this woman's incredible life was so impactful. Impact was so prioritized, was so won, so many victories won, that it's a shame that 
at the end that ego had more of an influence. And from a leadership development standpoint, I think that is something that leaders need to understand and hopefully make different decisions when (laughs) given the opportunity. And I can say that and I adore her and it should be okay to question and critique and yeah, hopefully grow from it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're kind of getting into a culture where it's like loyalty at all costs and that doesn't help us, like you're saying, grow and get better. Good to be called out and maybe corrected because then we can do better going forward. Nicole, do you have any outstanding questions before we move into our final little portion? which is hopefully fun. You know what, actually, I will say, I feel like this was just sort of understood in the things that we've been talking about. But if you had to define disinformation and misinformation, is there a difference? And how would you define each of those? So great question. They're both bad. (laughs) And they have some shared qualities. They both are sharing bad or debunked information with like various purposes, intense goals behind the sharing of that bad information. Where they differ, misinformation is false or out of context information that is presented as being true, regardless of like your intent to deceive. I have been guilty of passing on misinformation. For example, (laughs) there was a point in my life where I would go around saying to people, in Texas, pedestrians don't have the right of way. I don't know why I would say that. It made no sense. And guess what? It wasn't true. But I wasn't going around saying it with like malicious intent. For some reason, I thought in Texas, pedestrians didn't have the right of way. And I just would like share it because I don't know. I thought it was interesting. That was misinformation. Disinformation is a type of misinformation that is intentionally false. It is intended to deceive. It is intended to mislead. And when you, I know we talked a little bit about COVID, the COVID disinformation, when you look at kind of the breadth of all of the disinformation that was out there, they were able to identify like the top 12 spreaders of COVID disinformation. And what they all had in common is that they were all making money (laughs) off of selling products (laughs) and services that were benefiting from the disinformation they were spreading. So these folks for the grift were very intentionally like piecing together fake scientific research studies and taking things out of context and being grandiose in ways that were just disgusting, very intentionally because they were getting rich off of it. And so they're both bad. We're probably all guilty of sharing misinformation. The peddlers of disinformation are the ones that are intentionally trying to destroy everything. And I'm not being hyperbolic right now. Right. And it sounds like for their own gain. Although when it comes to like climate, we all live on the same planet. So at some point. Well, it's not going to happen in their lifetime is I guess. Think of the children. (laughs) Yeah. They have a bunker or they're Mars. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for clarifying the two of those. So before we let you go, we'll do our last little segment, which is hopefully a fun way to send people off into their days. And it's called our attention mentions, where we just mention something that has our attention. So like a book or a show or a politician or an article or anything like that. And I'll go first just because it kind of connects with what we're talking about. 
my sister was like, I have an attention mention for you. You need to go watch this show on Netflix called Eat the Rich, the GameStop Saga. (laughs) This is actually very fascinating. I think they made it in production with the Washington Post or I don't know. They made it in connection with a news organization that talked all about that period in time where GameStop stock went bonkers because retail traders were trying to benefit off of these people who were short selling. And I don't understand any of this stuff, but the documentary does a good job explaining it all. And it's all about like the meme culture that blow it up. So interesting moment in history and recommend y'all check it out. Sounds super interesting. What you got, Jamil? No, you go. (laughs) (laughs) I tend to bring the unsubstantial, the light and the fluffy, and I'm going to do it again. I have been watching Love is Blind season three on Netflix. And did you? Okay, well, maybe offline, we'll have to compare our notes. But so that is what has my attention. For sure, it is an escape from reality, even though it is reality TV, but you know how that works. So, well, God, I mean, I feel like because the election <laughs> is just days away and people are voting right now, it should be oriented. Because everyone should be get out the vote focus. Really, my mention is the peripheral. I love sci-fi. Any sci-fi fantasy, <laughs> I'm a big fan of. And it's a new show on Amazon. And it's all about a future world connecting with a world in the past and the lessons that you can learn through that connection and communication. And I think what I love about sci-fi is just like it gives us a vision to like what we can strive for or that type of sci-fi. The what kinds where like the world ends and everything's bad. I get that also, but like, I don't know. I just very much into like, how can we get there? How can we leapfrog where we are now? We need a vision, right? It's like, how can we leapfrog the current reality to get to that sci-fi? I'll take it. Thank you. I love some good sci-fi. So yeah, I'm going to check this out for sure. Now that The Expanse is over, that was another good one. But yeah. My favorite, The Expanse. May it rest <laughs> Yes. Well, thank you, Jamu, for sharing that recommendation and for letting us know more about how to be more media savvy, which is a skill I know all of us can improve upon and giving us like tangible tips on how to just like be better consumers and more aware of the information coming at us and how to just dialogue with each other better. Mm-hmm. It's so important. Yeah, how to engage, right? And the reminder too, to do it, <laughs> to invest in it. And that, keep you know. doing it. Yeah. 13 times. <laughs> Thank y'all for the conversation. This was great. Thank you. Thank you everybody for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host Claire Campos O'Neill on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.